0: only
1: redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value.
0: Out of my way, Gandhi. I'm coming in like I am a saint. I'm taking Grandma and Mary out to church and to IHOP every Sunday. What fresh hell. Laughing in the face of motherhood.
1: You can't run alongside your grown children with sunscreen and chapstick on their hero's journey. You have to release them.
0: (laughs) With Margaret Abel's and Amy Wilson. There is no happiness on that path of thinking you can make other people happy by solving their problems. A podcast that
1: solves today's parenting dilemmas. So you don't have to. You are wise when you recognize the limits of your own knowledge, when you accept that compromise is important, and when you are able to consider others'
0: perspectives. Hello, everyone, and welcome to What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Mother, this is Margaret.
1: And this is Amy, and today we're going to talk about why it is so much easier to solve other people's problems. I mean, agree, but I can't wait to hear why. Before we get to this for 2024, very exciting We have a mailbag.
2: Oh, yes. Wait a minute. Time for mailbag. Wait, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Check the
0: mailbag. I mean, mailbag is back. (laughs) Better than ever. It's back. It's back for the new year. This was from Kara, who emailed us,
1: info at com. She said, I'm not sure if this is the right email address to use. It was. It was, Kara, and and everybody can use that. (laughs) Great job. She said, hi, Amy and Margaret. I don't use social media. But I just wanted to thank you so much for your episode on Why Mothers Get All the Blame. I loved it, and I hope you two can talk about this issue more.
0: Mm, I did like that episode. I was on fire during that episode.
1: You came in hot. You showed up with receipts, and that's me. So I similarly have come today like,
0: oh, my God, this is so interesting. You're ready to go. I love it. I'm going to briefly mention that I had a dental procedure this morning. So if I sound a little garbled, it's not because I had vodka for breakfast. It's because I had a dental procedure. I can't even really see it. I'm looking at Margaret.
1: I can't see it or hear it, but.
0: It feels crazy to me. And I hear my own self in my own head through the. Your headphones Like not sounding like you. You know, the Novocaine haze, but I'm glad that for you, it is not bothersome. Isn't this
1: metaphorical though? Actually, like it sounds so much worse to you than it does to me. I'm like, you're like, I'm talking weird. I'm like, you're
0: definitely not. You sound fine. We're on the theme already. That's right. Don't I sound crazy to you? Don't I sound crazy? You don't sound crazy to me like you sound crazy to yourself. I sound very, very crazy to myself.
1: So I got this idea from when I interviewed Jessica McCabe, who created How to ADHD, and she wrote a book called How to ADHD. It was a fresh take a week or two back. And she mentioned during the Episode that, of course, ADHD is a problem with executive function, like making steps towards a goal driven behavior. If I'm going to get ready for, you know, to go to church, I got to find my shoes and I got to do this and, you know, whatever you do, that you can put those steps in an order and then not forget what you're doing along the way is executive function. That is a 10 cent definition, but fine. There is cool executive function, which is logic and analysis. And then there's Hot executive function, which is driven by emotion. And so, if you're ADHD, you are more likely to have, if your executive function is online at all, it's hot, it's driven by emotion, and you need to move towards cool. And Jessica was saying, for myself, it's so weird. I can be very on top of what somebody else needs to do. Here are the three most important things you need to get done today. I can help you figure that out. I just can't do it for myself. And that's a thing about ADHD that's interesting. And I thought to myself, It's a thing for everybody. And isn't that interesting?
0: As we often say on the podcast, that's everyone. That's everyone. Right. And it made me
1: think of Anne Lamott, one of my favorite authors. She has a great Facebook page, TED Talk, like her writing and then her writing about writing, like everything about her is amazing. So she put this joke up on Facebook once. She said, I thought of a great title for a book. It's called What I Think You Should Do, The Road to Happiness.
0: It is, in fact, a very good book.
1: So that's what we're going to talk about today. Why it's so clear to us what other people should be doing, why that is, and how could we maybe take some of that magic and apply it to ourselves? And also, can we maybe not assume that we always know what's best for other people?
0: Okay, I'm ready to try, Amy. Hit me. You're, you're ready to hear
1: this. So it turns out that there's a name... For this thing that it's so much easier to solve other people's problems than your own. I discovered doing the research. It's called Solomon's Paradox. Have you ever heard this
0: term? I feel that I have. I I feel that I have. Makes sense. So King Solomon. Solomon, like the guy who cut the baby.
1: Well, he didn't cut the baby. So he was a very wise... Ruler and supposedly from the Old Testament, and two women in the street were saying, like, "That's my baby. That's my baby. and they were fighting over whose baby it was. And King Solomon said, "I know what we'll do. We'll just cut the baby in half. And then one woman screamed, "No, And he said, There's the mother because the other woman would have been happy to have half a baby cut in half. I mean, the story makes no sense, but that
0: was the idea. He was so wise. Listen, we're not going to dig deep. We're not going to double tap on the story because it just leads to more questions. We're not going to double tap on the part where there was the
1: other woman who was fine with half a baby. But okay, yes,
0: with a half a baby. Okay. So that was he he doesn't sound right to us.
1: And he's a paragon of judgment. That's the point of the story. But in the Old Testament, he is portrayed as not being able to make good decisions for himself. So he's like Mr. Wise guy walking down the street and solve, you know, everything that's every thorny issue for himself, loose living, Lots of women, and the real problem came, I guess, when he had lots of girlfriends from other countries, and then he built temples to their pagan gods on the hills around Jerusalem. This was a bad move. The Old Testament would have it. And then, you know, like a hundred years later, his kingdom was ruined, and everybody blamed him because he had made these terrible decisions. personal decisions.
0: So the Solomon's paradox is, I'm great at your problems. I'm bad at my own. Problems. Yes. How could somebody who is such a wise
1: ruler make such poor personal decisions for themselves? Right. So that that's what it is. So there are these two social psychologists, their names are Igor Grossman and Ethan Cross. And they set out to discover whether Solomon's paradox was a thing, right? Like it's something you and I recognize, like hey, everybody feels that way. But is it something they could qualitatively measure? So they did a study. I love the study. They had two groups of People And they asked them to imagine something. One group of people they asked to imagine that their significant other had cheated on them with a very close friend. And they said, I want, we want you to really sit and vividly ponder that your partner has cheated on you with a very close friend. And then they asked the second group of people to imagine that. a friend of theirs had had this happen to them, that their partner had cheated on them with a very close friend of theirs. They had to vividly ponder these events, that's their words, and then they had to answer a series of questions about what feelings might be involved, what's going to happen next, and what should happen next. And to your non-surprise, I am sure, the participants had much more wisdom about the dilemma when they were imagining it for a friend going through it than they did when they were imagining it for themselves going through it.
0: Yes, this makes a lot of sense. And it reminds me of arguments around what we call anecdotal laws, that there tends to be a problem with laws that are based around one specific person's incident, they tend to have a lot of unintended consequences. So a law that's generally named after a person, you know, uh Samantha's law or whatever. I'm I'm there may be a Samantha's law. I'm not citing that one particularly. That they tend to be long-term somewhat problematic because they are based very anecdotally on a bad thing that happened to one person's generally child. But that the result of it as it plays out long term as a law tends to be somewhat problematic. And that we think about justice, that justice is supposed to be sort of neutral because the ability for justice to say, Amy, you did something wrong and we're going to mete out a punishment that involves possibly some rehabilitation and possibly some Uh, grace and mercy for you, depending on your level of sorrow, whatever. Whereas if the person who's affected by your crime or is their child is affected by your crime was allowed to adjudicate it, every crime would result in like, let's pull this person apart in the public square, right? Because our emotions are involved in what happens to us And then we're able to be neutral or at least more fair about things that happen to other people.
1: Okay. All right. That makes a lot of sense. That's the first reason, right? When I sort of collected all the different reasons, people suggested it might be easier to solve somebody else's problems. And the first one was uh, emotional distance. That if it's somebody else's problem, you don't have emotional investment and you're not attached to the outcome. You're not experiencing the fear, doubt, you know, panic, whatever is in the head of the person who experienced it. And so you can perceive it through a neutral lens. And you can also, this goes with the whole idea that if you could only see how powerful you were, you know, I believe you can do anything. These are greeting card sentiments. Like if you could only see yourself through your children's eyes, you would know, mama, that you're powerful beyond measure, right? Other people see you as capable of doing things, but you don't.
0: Yes. That's true. And also, I saw a comedian, comic writer, and in one of the chapters he wrote kind of movingly about something that had happened to him and how much like grace and sensitivity he needed around it. And then in the next chapter, had written like a very comical essay really making fun of another person. I saw this reading done in San Francisco where people are very sensitive and someone Raise their hand and kind of antagonistically asked the question like, well, why did you ask for grace to yourself? And then you were just goofing on this other person who had a, another problem. And he was kind of like, because it happened to me. <laughs> like, it's tragedy when it happens to me and it's comedy when it happens to you. And it's kind of an old joke, but it's there's a truth very much at the center of it.
1: I was trying to remember which episode it was, but I certainly remember talking about it a couple of years ago during the pandemic. We were talking about the idea of a snake that if you're, I think it would happen to me in in my life that I was in a yard with a snake, but then my kids were looking at me through the window, watching me in the yard with the snake. So they were like, it wasn't that big. It was just a snake. And I was like, did you see me outside with the snake?
0: But I, they were through the window looking at me. So of course there was a distance. I think it was a writer who wrote about that concept, and we were talking about it. And I often think about this in perception, and I think I've learned a lot about it on the podcast being scary to like our spouses and our children or in fights. And, you know, when I have a conflict with someone, I often perceive them as like scary, you know, like this is a very intense way you're coming at me and it's throwing me off. But when I do that to my husband and kids, like when I, my temper flies and I get big and ragey, they perceive me as scary, but I'm like, it's just me being mad. Like, of course I'm mad. I'm just mad. Yeah. And I think it can be very difficult to see yourself from your own eyes. Right. We
1: don't have distance from ourselves. We don't have confidence in ourselves. And so we, I guess that means we don't see our ability to solve the problem. We can't see the problem accurately if we can't see our own contributions to it too, right? Like, I'm not angry. Everybody just makes me annoyed all the time, right? You're not really seeing yourself, your own participation in that conflict, perhaps.
0: correctly, yes. Yeah.
1: All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, there's a bunch more reasons why it is so much easier to solve other people's problems. optimally hydrated so whether you're looking to hydrate during your workout while traveling or at the end of a long night sports research hydrate electrolytes have got you covered with over 65 trace minerals seven essential vitamins and coconut water
0: powder Crisp and refreshing without any sugar, this is hydration powered by Sports Research. Each box has 16 little stick packs that you can take on the go, whether you're headed to an exercise class, a night out with friends, or a podcasting conference.
1: And did we mention they come in delicious flavors from raspberry lemonade to cherry pomegranate? Stay hydrated with Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes. Visit sportsresearch.com and use the code WHATFRESH at checkout for 50% off your purchase of Hydrate.
0: That's S-P-O-R-T-S-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H.com, sportsresearch.com, and use code WHATFRESH for 50% off your Hydrate Electrolytes order. Amy, we're back. Tell me why it's easier to solve other people's problems. The next reason is cognitive
1: biases. There's two of them that apply in this case. The first one is confirmation bias.
0: Yes, I love confirmation
1: bias. Confirmation bias, just to give a strict definition, it is the tendency to search for, interpret, or recall information that confirms or
0: supports one's prior beliefs. This is when you're looking for someone in an airport, and I'm like, is that Amy? And it's like, no, that's a 90-year-old Chinese man. Like, how did I ever think that was Amy? But I'm looking for Amy. And so I'm matching the features of every, like, dark hair. Okay, like, and as they get closer, it's clear that it could never be you. But when you're looking for someone, you'll see them in a crowd.
1: I can think of a very recent example. I won't delve into too many details, but a personal example that's just happened to me. Somebody who I am perceiving myself as being in sort of a detente with. Like, not a conflict, but just sort of a, a cooling, right? A cooled relationship. And I texted this person something and they, uh, some good news. And this person texted back, amazing, exclamation point. And I was explaining this to a mutual friend. And I said, see, so I, and then I texted this good news, because I thought this person would be happy for me and want to know. And they texted back, amazing. But then they didn't like text anything else. And they didn't call me and they didn't like show up knocking on my door, you know, and and then it took this third friend to say to me, clearly, this is war, right? But they, did text you so they texted you the word amazing exclamation point and your response is but clearly they're mad at me because they and that's confirmation bias at work when really you could say just the opposite
0: my husband has a special gift of being immune to this and he is my north star in terms of He's very able to like assume the best of a situation or a person. And I am often like, can you see how this person is trying to undermine everything I am and everything I stand for? And he's like, I think maybe they just sent you a mixtape of songs, you know? And like, it always fascinates me, like how calm it must be inside his own head. Cause he's not like, I see this and I layer 46 different agendas on it. And I come to a conclusion about what that person is really up to. He's like, I think they just bought you a piece of pie. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> they didn't give me the whole pie. You See, see, one piece. Are you kidding me? My husband just did this this week. He,
1: like we were doing our like under the covers, like nighttime chit chat. And he's like, this person at work, like did this, that this person at work had disagreed with him. And it was clearly Personal. I'm like, what if the person disagreed with you? And again, it's just, you can see it clearly, the confirmation bias of this person is always like this, this is never like this, they'll never give me this, they always give me why, and the third party can't, doesn't have that experience, it doesn't have that bias. So that's when it's really good, I think, to ask for advice.
0: My mom, the therapist, was always big on like, it's I statements, it's a big therapy thing, because it's not you, Amy, you always undermine me. It's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Those nine examples, I was literally just getting you some pie.
1: Mm-hmm. The other thing, the other cognitive bias that can come into play for the person who's closest to it, the person experiencing the thing, is the sunk cost fallacy.
0: Mhm. And this is, I love a sunk cost fallacy. I had one this very morning. I had signed up for a class that I had pre-paid for and our driveway was icy and my driveway is like a weird hill with a turn. It's a hard driveway if it's icy at all. Take the car out, go up, the car slides off the hill and I'm like, all right, I got to get past it in the other car. I try to take the other car up. It slides past car number one, missing it by like an inch. I call my husband. I'm like, we have to get these cars out. Like, let's push the cars out and like, A, die under the wheels of the car. And B, he's like, the cars are going to hit each other. I spent $45 on a class that I'm now not going to get my money back for. And I'm going to cause $1,500 in damage to these cars. Because I have sunk cost fallacy about that $45.
1: Yes. And you've also been in it, right? Like I've been doing this thing for 20 minutes, so I have to achieve it. My frustration at not being able to achieve it must be overcome by achieving it instead of just leaving the cars at the bottom of the driveway till tomorrow, right? Like It's much clearer when you're outside it. So the sunk cost fallacy is our tendency to keep going with something we've invested money, effort, or time into, even if the current costs outweigh the benefits.
0: This is a scales from the eyes phrase for me when I first heard it, and I have gotten so much better about it. And the very practical version is like, I bought tickets to something that I no longer want to go to, and it will cost me money to get there, and it will be unpleasant. You can just say, I'm not going to go. I'm going to lose that money rather than keep adding money to it. Or it can be, I have worked at this company for four years already. And if I quit, I'm somehow giving up on what I've invested. I'm losing my investment in this. Not a thing.
1: Or it can be a relationship that you've spent two years going out with somebody and it's not that great. And there are these big, you know, caution signs flashing, but you've been dating for two years. You can't break up because you've put two years into this relationship. You can't just walk away. But somebody else can be like, he's not nice to you. It's much, much clearer from down the road. Tricky. And this comes into how this relates to parenting, which is, I think it's exceedingly easy for us to solve our kids' problems, right? Because we stand outside it. We have the literal distance of seventh grade was a long time ago. And I can look at this drama and be like, who said Emma got to decide who's cool and who's not, right? Like, who is this Emma kid?
0: Emma is a twerp. I think even more so though, our kids' problems, but seeing other people's problems. Like like it seems very clear also that I can look at another family and be like, oh, it would be so easy if to solve like that problem doesn't seem like a big deal. Whereas what's going on at my house seems monumental and terrible. Mm-hmm. That being outside of it, every ring outside you get, it, it seems like I mean people. This must be a biological design that someone says to you like, oh, I have a friend and she has three little kids and one of them's really sick and her husband just lost his job. And you're like, oh, that sounds bad. Like if that was happening in your own home, you'd be under it, you know, like that little bit of distance. Yeah. And you've talked about you just the lack of emotionality, I think makes a huge You know, sometimes what's going on between me and one of my teenagers feels like, why does the world still turn when this drama is going on between the two of us, this insurmountable problem? And I'm sure other people look at us and go, that's not that big a deal. Like, it's just a teen, just an angry teen and an uptight mom. They'll be fine. And I think
1: that's why sometimes our kids get so mad at us, right, when they're bringing a problem to us. It's sometimes we show up with solutions when they're just asking for an ear to listen or whatever. But I think it's also when we are sort of like, so just tell them you don't want to go out with them anymore. You know, when you're too flip in your approach to it because you really do have this distance that makes it really hard for you to enter how huge it is to be in this. I have to sit next to Henry in history class thing that they're coming to you with. You know what I mean? I think that can seem really dismissive to our kids and we don't mean it to be. It's just there's such a a gap in our ability to understand how it feels to be them.
0: Yeah. And I think the perspective issue too, as you mentioned, it's like Emma is a twerp, is not useful. They're in it. They're in the fire, you know? And so to be like, this isn't important. It doesn't matter. You could take two steps to the left and solve this. I mean, I'm thinking of a dilemma that I witnessed in my own life where I just kept thinking it was a relationship issue. And I just kept thinking the door to happiness is two doors down and you two goofballs are banging on this door that leads nowhere. And it's painful (laughs) to watch. Yeah. And I want to physically grab you and shove you two doors down and shove you through that door because You're making yourselves miserable at door B, but I can see so clearly that door A is available. And I I almost have to cut off contact because it's too frustrating to just sit on the sidelines and watch this. But the person has to find door A by themselves. You know, like there is no version where you lead someone to door A and it works. Yes. Right.
1: And so you think like, this is so simple, just do this. But then you're perceiving it if you're on the receiving end of this. And then like, just do door A. I don't know why you keep calling me about this. Not that you'd be that rude, but it will be sometimes perceived as that rude, that dismissive. And then, you know, then you feel like you're on the receiving end of these thought terminating cliches, right? Like God doesn't give you anything you can't handle.
0: Like, <laughs> easy for you to say, right? You're not in the NICU with me. It's kind of I mean, Al-Anon does a lot of this kind of work, which is it's for partners, family members of people who are in addiction of some sort. And it's that kind of feeling of like, you just stop drinking so much and everything will be better. And you can physically go and clean bottles out of the house and stare at the person all day. But if they're not ready to stop Drinking, you can't do anything. Like, you can have all the perspective you want on someone else's issue, but you can't solve it for them. That's frustrating. That's why Anne Lamont wants her book to be called I Solved It For You. Yeah. What is it
1: called? <laughs> it's called uh, What I Think You Should Do, The Road to Happiness. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. There is no happiness on that path of thinking you can make other people happy by solving their problems. But, like, my husband and I will sometimes. Talk about something that's going on with someone else or talk about something even going on in the world. And he always kind of sighs at the end of our conversation. He's like, if only everyone would listen to us, everything would be good. It's like, yeah, we really do have all the answers. We have all the solutions.
1: I have another Anne Lamott quote for you that like sums this up so perfectly. She says, We can't arrange peace or lasting improvement for the people we love most in the world. They have to find their own ways, their own answers. You can't run alongside your grown children with sunscreen and chapstick on their hero's journey. You have to release them.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it is hard. And I think especially with kids, you know, you watch them. I was just talking to my husband about this last night, about something that's going on with one of our kids and that I have strong feelings about. And he was sort of gently correcting me in... That's their thing to figure out. Basically, I want them to see the big picture, and I think they're hung up on the details. And every time we talk about it, I have a tendency to be like, You're hung up on the details. Let's see the big picture. And (laughs) whatever that means, right? (laughs) To a child, you're hung up on the details, child. Well, yeah. I'm trying to talk about it without too much specificity, but yeah, I mean, I'm definitely like, I'm basically lecturing them every time they bring this to me. And I think I'm doing that too much in general with my teens. Like they're like, I had a bad day. And I'm like, it's a learning lesson. Here's why. And here's what you'll see when you're older. And my husband was kind of gently trying to say, I think you can not say it every time. I think you can say it shorter. And then think of the times where you don't have to say it at all. Like you don't want the kids to feel like, I want to tell mom something, but I'm going to get a lecture on the meaning of life when I'm just trying to tell them like Emma was being a twerk today.
1: It makes me think of this whole idea, which I feel like I have this conversation every 15 minutes with somebody like, well, I'm older now and I've reached the stage where I'm out of things to give, right? I'm all out of things. At my age, I've learned something. And you know, we say that like it's been harder and with age, and maybe it has been, but it is also true that your hot executive function becomes less prevalent and your cool executive function comes online more as you get older. It just does. You are able to be less emotional in your decisions.
0: Before we turn to solutions, I have to quote one of my favorite tweets of all time, which I will not get exactly correct, but is hilarious. And it has a sort of comic take on this whole thing, which is she says, me taking a picture of myself at 25, I look hideous. I look like a troll. I am so hideous. And then me looking at that picture at 30, I really looked so beautiful. But look at this new picture of me. I look hideous. And then it's like me at 35, you're not going to believe this. And it's like, right, it's the cycle repeats and repeats and repeats. And yeah, perspective, it's easy to have for other people, hard to have for ourselves, Amy. Well, I have
1: some expert advice on how you maybe can make some of that other person perspective easier for yourself and your approach to problems. So let's talk about that after a break. while
0: I'm back and I'm ready for some perspective. All right.
1: Let's figure out how we can apply some of that perspective that we have so much when it's for other people and, and sort of turn it in on ourselves. In order to do this, Igor Grossman and Ethan Cross, those same two, they did the study about how would you feel if your friend's spouse cheated on him or you? So they, they were able to prove that this Solomon's Paradox existed and they were able to also prove that you could make this effect go away almost completely. So they ran the study again, and they told some people, think about what, how your friend would feel if her husband cheated on her, and how would she feel, and should they stay married? And then they tell the other half, imagine that you're you, and your husband cheated on you, and how would you feel, and are you going to stay married? But as you do that, consider What would you tell a really good friend who is doing this? What sort of advice would you give to a friend in that situation? And all they did was sort of read that in as a technique that you should use while you're doing this like depressing, you know, fantasy for 10 minutes. And doing that, they were able to almost completely close the gap in the amount of emotionality and the usefulness of the the wisdom that was being applied.
0: So just distancing yourself from the situation.
1: Yeah. So that's their solution. They said like the solution is self-distancing, that you have to pretend you're a friend. You have to get inside and look through the window at the snake, right? Pretend you're somebody else.
0: Mm -hmm. Pretend you're outside of it.
1: Yeah. And pretend you're the friend. And what would your friend give you? They said literally write down the problem as if it's happening to somebody else. Like tell the story that's happening to a character, that you're talking about in the third person instead of yourself? And what would you tell her?
0: That's smart. And it's complicated and hard to do, but getting outside of it, it's something that we say all the time on the podcast watch your story, right? And that it's like, it's literally watch your story, like write your story down in the third person is the ultimate example of that. And I think also the story you tell about, husband who just doesn't value anything I do and hate. he's just, our marriage is dead because he just doesn't let, and it's like, or he's tired and stressed from work and he's thinking too much about himself and not enough about you, you know, that getting outside of the stories that we tell ourselves and finding that distance, I think that we've long valued on the podcast.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or in the case of a conflict with your spouse, exactly. Come at it from the point of view. I've heard you do this of saying sort of like, or you can think about it like, I just worked, you know, really hard and I walked in after 10 hours and here my partner is already mad at me that I haven't been here all day and like throwing a baby at me and, and is like mad as soon as I walk in for reasons I don't understand. It's pretty effective.
0: And it's hard and you're not going to do it every day. Like you are in your own skin, you know, and I certainly had conflicts with friends or family or anyone I ever had a conflict with where I come in it with this person has been targeting me unfairly because of these eight reasons. And then the fight starts And they're like, you have this huge agenda. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, we are both in crazy town. Like, you are ascribing to me 400 thoughts and manipulations that are just not right at all, you know? And I am ascribing to you a vast agenda that like doesn't even involve me. This is I always say the best advice I ever got from my ex-boyfriend, but at some point I was explaining some elaborate, you know, war I was in with somebody, <laughs> imaginary war, yeah. And he said, "You know, you would be so much happier if you realized how rarely anyone else ever thought about you." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's really good advice. Just that people are not coming to you with an agenda, the agenda you think they are. And I will say, I'll, I'll make it personal for a minute. I think that this is why you and I have such a successful partnership. I think we have a really strong ability to come in without a lot of ego and say, this dynamic is frustrating me. How can we fix this dynamic? Like, I don't think we often have a conversation where one of us starts with, you're so selfish. You're so, like, I think we said early on in our partnership, like, let's always believe that the other person is doing their best and has the best intentions. And I think that we've been able to function that way in our partnership in a way that I really notice. Like, you know, an ability to come in and say, this is landing too much on my plate. This is frustrating me. But it never starts with like, you idiot, you are doing this stupid thing in order to undermine me, you know? And I think that there is a healthiness in being able to And it's hard because you have to have equality in relationships to be able to do this, because the fact of the matter is some people are trying to take you down. Some people are trying to undermine you, you know?
1: Right. And some people aren't here to hear anything besides their own story, I guess. Yeah.
0: And they don't have your best interests at heart. And they are. I mean, I think that you have to be in a very equitable relationship to be able to say, I am going to trust that you are never doing anything just to make my life more
1: difficult. You know, it's sometimes I was just thinking of a time that somebody said something to me, not carelessly, not offhandedly. But you know, she'd be shocked that I could recall this decades later, right? I was just talking about that. Afra mentioned completely hypothetical example of well, we've been going out so long now, I can't break up now, even though the relationship isn't working, right. And it was a long distance relationship. We weren't together very much. And so, you know, we had to make it work. And I had a a friend who just was listening, nodding her head. And then she was like, well, maybe that you're spending so much time apart is really, you know, the answer that you're looking for. And then we just like sort of went on with our day. And like, I thought about that for months and months and months and months. And that person was right. And that person just like sort of dropped that in the road and kept walking, right? They weren't like shaking me by the shoulders and saying, you have to see this about yourself or we're not getting up from this table. Not at all, but it was just this.
0: It's just that they had that ability to see it so much more clearly than you did from the outside. Right. And then
1: we went home. I'm like, what? And like, of course, this person was right. And, you know, and I took that advice eventually. But yeah, it's so much easier. I
0: once found all my old diaries and... What amazed me—I mean, they were years and years of diaries, and I was reading through them, and like relationships, I would just write the same things again and again and again about my relationship with my boyfriend or my relationship with somebody in my family. And I didn't reading it back. I was like, "You dummy, you're writing this four hundred times over the course of ten, and you're not putting it together. That you keep saying the same thing. Like I literally could did not have it." It was fascinating to see it in pen and paper. And I was young and I was probably dopey and stuff, but it still was really interesting to see it play out on paper. That distance, right? You have the distance of time from yourself. Right. And like, how did I not catch on? I have another funny example, which is, it's a funny example. And then it's happened in much less funny ways throughout my life. When I was a teenager, my grandmother was still alive in her 90s and lived with her sister who was two years older. So they were both in their like late 80s, early 90s at the time. And I would go over to their apartment and take them to church on Sundays. And then I would take them out to the International House of Pancakes for breakfast. Very nice. That's a great morning. As my like good deed. I'm like a high schooler. I'm like... I'm going straight to heaven when I die. Like, look at me. I'm taking these two old ladies out. I'm jumping the line. You're in the clear lane at heaven. (laughs) Oh, out of my way, Gandhi. I'm coming in like I am a saint. I'm taking grandma and Mary out to church and to IHOP every Sunday. And then at some point, my grandmother's talking to my mother and she's like, God bless Meg. We go to that IHOP with her. She loves IHOP. We can't stand it, but we don't want to let her down. That we don't like it at IHOP. And I was like, oh my God, like here we are. We're both. It's like the gift of the Magi in reverse. We're making each other miserable. But my grandma thinks she's doing me a great favor by going IHOP with me. That's amazing. And I think that that is also what ends up happening when you just are laying too much into perception.
1: I wanted to close with what the definition of wisdom is. Again, this is from Igor Grossman and Ethan Cross, because they spent years thinking about this. This is how they ended up defining wisdom after doing all of this research, what makes somebody wise. So they're saying you are wise when you recognize the limits of your own knowledge, when you accept that compromise is important, and when you are able to consider others' perspectives. Those are the three things that make wisdom.
0: I mean, agree. And it's so... Somebody said to me, like, what have you figured out as an adult? And I said, it's just so hard to understand other people's perspectives. Like, that to me is the great mystery of adulthood. How hard it is to see things the same way as other people. That, like, it's somehow, it's like the Tower of Babel, it's like a biblical curse. Like, we cannot see things from other people's perspectives. And it's so hard and challenging. When you want to have like loving connection with other people, but you just cannot see the world through their eyes. It's really hard. It's hard with our kids. It's really hard with our spouses. It's certainly hard with our family of origin and harder still when there's, we have a high conflict or a difficult family of origin that everybody, I think most people are actually trying to like get through the day and get along but they just bang up against other people's operating systems and it makes life really hard. Yeah. Well, I'm going to try this self-distancing
1: technique. I'll let you know how it goes. I'll report back.
0: Let me know, Amy. (laughs) Do let me know. I'm not going to try anything. I'm just going to keep being (laughs) me. Let's Get out of my way. I'm on the fast (laughs) lane to heaven, everyone. I'm just doing it. We're going to conduct an experiment. Right. I'm going to really try to
1: (laughs) apply everything we learned today and you're going to do nothing differently and we'll see who's happier.
0: Sounds (laughs) like a plan. Friends, there's something we want you to do differently. We recently were having a conversation, very in the weeds. It's not super interesting, but we need reviews on Apple Podcasts, friends. If you are enjoying this show, please let us know. Please tell us on social media. But before you do any of those things, please leave a review for the show on Apple Podcasts. People use it in ways that are insane for metrics, and it's actually super important. And so if you have the time, the inclination, go give us some stars and tell people that you like the podcast. Review it in whatever player you listen right? Right, but especially Apple Podcasts, if you're listening to Apple
1: Podcasts.
0: (laughs) Especially Apple Podcasts. You get in there, leave a review. It doesn't take very long, and it really helps us out. It sure does. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.
2: Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory.